The Howe and Webster farms adjoined, lying on a sun-flooded, gently sloping New Hampshire hillside. Between them loomed the wall. It was not a high wall. On the contrary, its formidableness was the result of tradition rather than of fact. For more than a century it had been an estranging barrier to neighborliness, to courtesy, to broad-mindedness, a barrier to friendship, to Christian charity, to peace. The builder of the rambling line of gray stone had long since passed away, and had he not acquired a warped importance with the years, his memory would doubtless have perished with him. All unwittingly, alas, he had become a celebrity. His was the fame of omission, however, rather than of commission. Had he, like artist or sculptor, but affixed his signature to his handiwork, then might he have sunk serenely into oblivion, unwept, unhonored, and unsung. But unfortunately he was a modest creature. Instead, he had stepped nameless into the silence of the hereafter, leaving to those who came after him not only the sinister boundary his hands had reared, but also a feud that had seethed hotly for generations. If within the narrow confines of his last resting place he had ever been conscious of the dissension for which he was responsible, and had been haunted by a desire to utter the magic word he had neglected to speak in life, he at least gave no sign. His lips remained sealed in death, and his spirit was never seen to walk abroad. Possibly he retired into his shroud with this finality, because he never found it imperative, as did Hamlet's ghost to admonish posterity to remember him. Only too well was he remembered. The Howes and Websters who followed him hurled against the sounding board of heaven the repeated questions of who built the wall, and whose duty was it to repair it. Great-grandfather Jabez Howe quibbled with great-grandfather Abiatha Webster for a lifetime, and both went down into the tomb still quibbling over the enigma. Afterward Grandfather Nathan Howe and Grandfather Ebenezer Webster took up the dispute, and they, too, were gathered into the beyond without ever reaching a conclusion. Their children then wrangled and argued and slandered one another, and, like their forebears, retired from the field in impotent rage, leaving the combat a draw. In the meantime, the outlines of the ancient landmark became less clear-cut. Rocks toppled from its summit, Yawning gaps marred its sharp edges, and at its base vines and growing things began to creep defiantly in and out the widening fissures that rent its foundation. Almost imperceptibly year by year dissolution went on, the crude structure melting into picturesqueness and taking on the gentle charm of a ruin until Martin Howe and Ellen Webster, its present-day guardians, beheld it an ignominious heap of stone that lay crumbling amid woodbine and clematis. Far more beautiful was it in this half-concealed dilapidation than ever it had been in the pride of its perfection. Then it had stood boldly out against the landscape, naked and aggressive, today, clothed in nature's soft greenery, it had become so dim a heritage that it might easily have receded into the past and been forgotten had not the discord of which it had become the symbol been willfully fanned into flame. As in a bygone age one runner passed a lighted torch on to another, so did one generation of Howes and Websters bequeath to the next the embers of a wrath that never died. Each faction disclaimed all responsibility for the wall, and each refused to lay hand to it. Adamantin as was the lichen-covered heap of granite, it was of far more mutable a quality 
than were the dispositions of those who had so stubbornly let it fall into decay. Time's hand had softened the harsh stone into mellow beauty, but the flint-like characters of the house and Webster's remained uncompromising as of yore. And now that Martin Howe and Ellen Webster reigned in their respective homesteads, neither one of them was any more graciously inclined toward raising the fallen boundary to its pristine glory than had been their progenitors. But for their obstinacy they might have agreed to dispense with the wall altogether, since long ago it had become merely an empty emblem of restriction, and without recourse to it each knew beyond question where the dividing line between the estates ran, moreover, as both families shunned the other's land as if it were plague-ridden territory there was scant temptation for them to invade each other's domains. But the man and the woman had inherited too much of the blood of the original stock to consider entering into an armistice. They had, it is true, bettered their predecessors to the extent of exchanging a stilted greeting when they met, but this perfunctory salutation was usually hurtled across the historic borderline and was seldom concluded without some reference to it. For Ellen Webster was an aggravating old woman dowered, with just enough of the harpy never to be able to leave her antagonist in peace if she saw him at work in his garden. Mornin', Martin, she would call. Good morning, Miss Webster. So you're plowin' up a new strip of land? Yes, marm. I espose you know it would save you a deal of carton if you was to use the stones you're gettin' out to fix up your wall. Then the Hector would watch the brick-red color steal slowly from the man's cheek up to his forehead. To pile the stones on the heap so near at hand would, he recognized, have saved both time and trouble, nevertheless, he would have worked until he dropped in his tracks rather than have yielded to the temptation. His, wall, indeed. The impudence of the vixen. Angry in every fiber of his body, he would therefore will upon his tormentor and flash out. When you see me tinker in your tumble-down wall, Miss Ellen Webster, I'll be some older than I am now. I've work enough of my own to do without talking in repairs for my neighbors. At that, he would hear a malicious chuckle. For some such response Ellen always waited. She liked to see the fire of rage burn itself through Martin's tan and feel that she had the power to kindle it. He never disappointed her. Sometimes, to be sure, she had to prod him more than once, but eventually his retort, sharp as the sting of an insect, was certain to come. From it, she derived a half-humorous, half-vindictive satisfaction, for she was a keen student of human nature and no one knew better than she that after the cutting words had left his lips proud-spirited young Martin scorned himself for having been goaded into uttering them. A tantalizing creature, Ellen Webster. Silent, penurious, shrewd to the margin of dishonesty, unrelenting as the rock-fronted fastnesses of her native hills, good-humored at times, and even possessed of swift moods of tenderness that disarmed and appealed such she was. She stood straight as a spruce despite the burden of her years, and a suggestion of girlhood's bloom still colored her cheek, but the features of her crafty countenance were tightly drawn, the blue eyes glinted with metallic light, and the mouth was saved from cruelty only by its upward curve of humor. She had been an only daughter, who since her teens had nursed invalid parents until death had claimed them, 
and left her mistress of the homestead where she now lived. There had, it is true, been a boy, but in his early youth he had shaken the New Hampshire dust from off his feet and gone west, from which utopia he had for a time sent home to his sister occasional and peculiarly inappropriate gifts of Mexican saddles, sombreros, leggings, and Indian blankets. He had received but scant gratitude, however, for these well-intentioned offerings. It had always been against the traditions of the Websters to spend money freely and Ellen, a Webster to the core, resented his lack of prudence, furthermore the articles were useless and cluttered up the house. Possibly the more open-handed Thomas understood the implied rebuke in the meager thanks awarded him, and was hurt by it, at any rate, he ceased sending home presents, and by and by Ellen lost trace of him altogether. Years of silence, unbroken by tidings of any sort, followed. Ellen had almost forgotten she had a brother when one day a letter arrived announcing his death. The event brought to the sister no grief, for years ago Thomas had passed out of her life. Nevertheless, the message left behind it an aftermath of grim realizations that stirred her to contemplate the future from quite a new angle. She had never before considered herself old. Now she suddenly paused and reflected upon her seventy-five years and the uncertainty of the stretch of days before her. Through the window, she could see her prosperous lands, her garden upon the southern slope of the hill where warm sun kissed into life its lushly growing things, her pasture pierced by jagged rocks and cattle trampled stretches of rough turf, her woodlot where straight young pines and oak saplings lifted their reaching crests toward the sky, her orchard, the index of her progenitor's foresight. All these had belonged to the Websters for six generations, and she could not picture them the property of any one bearing another name nor could she endure the thought of the wall being sometime rebuilt by an outsider. What was to be the fate of her possessions after she was gone? Suppose a stranger purchased the estate. Or, worse than all, suppose that after she was dead Martin Howe was to buy it in. The house had always wanted more land. Imagine Martin Howe plowing up the rich loam of her fields, invading with his axe the dim silences of her woodlot enjoying the fruit of her orchard, driving his herds into her pasture. Fancy his feet grating upon the threshold of her home, his tread vibrating on her stairways. The irony of it. Martin was young. At least, he was not old. He could not be more than forty. He might marry sometime. Many a man more unapproachable even than Martin Howe did marry. And if he should marry, what would be more likely than that he would give to his maiden sisters Mary, Eliza, and Jane the Howe farm, and take for his own abode the more spacious homestead of the Websters? Ellen's brows contracted fiercely, then her mouth twisted into a crooked smile. What a retribution if, after all, it should be Martin whose fate it was to rebuild the wall. Why, such a revenge would almost compensate for the property falling into his hands. Suppose it should become his lot to cut away the vines and underbrush, haul hither the great stones and hoist them into place. And if while he toiled at the hateful task and beads of sweat rolled from his forehead, a sympathetic and indulgent providence would but permit her to come back to earth and, standing at his elbow, jeer at him while he did it. Ah, that would be revenge indeed.